Good afternoon. Good afternoon and welcome to this gathering of remembrance on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. Will you please join me in a spirit of prayer? Great source and end of all we cherish, we assemble now to mourn, hearts broken with grief for every person lost on 9-11 and in its aftermath, each one infinitely beloved, precious. May we honor their memory by living our own lives with honor and simple grace. We gather now to remember believing that if we dare to remember honestly and well, we may live into our future honestly and well, nurturing what is best in ourselves and denying what is not. And so we gather also to hope, hope for the human family in its suffering and striving, hope for societies that will foster compassion, justice and dignity, Hope for citizens everywhere who will have the courage to practice mercy and love. May peace and well-being be all our inheritance. Amen. Good afternoon and welcome to Cannon Green. I would like to thank you for joining us at this gathering in remembrance of September the 11th, 2001, especially those who lost loved ones on that tragic day. You hold a special place in the heart of this university community. I want to extend special thanks to Senator Bill Bradley, class of 1965, and a former member of our Board of Trustees for being with us today he exemplifies what we mean when we say Princeton is in the nation's service. I'm also grateful to today's other speakers and performers for sharing their reflections and talents with us as we remember the 13 Princetonians and the nearly 3,000 men and women who perished in New York, Arlington, Virginia, and rural Pennsylvania 10 years ago today. The world is poor for their absence, and nothing we can say or do can adequately fill the void that they left. We also remember the heroic rescuers who responded to the attack on the World Trade Center, only to suffer lifelong ill effects from the toxic dust to which they were exposed, as well as all those whose lives have been forever altered by the horror of what they witnessed. Indeed, no one who remembers that deceptively beautiful September morning and watched or listened in disbelief as news of the attacks began to spread has been left untouched. We may no longer look nervously skyward when an airplane rumbles overhead, but we will never feel as secure as we did on September the 10th, 2001. So what can we do? 10 years later, to turn this searing memory to good account. It is not enough to honor those who died and comfort those who mourn, important though this is. We must also recommit ourselves to ensuring that hatred and intolerance 
which took devastating form on 9-11, do not find fertile ground in our midst. Even in moments of anger and grief, we must seek the good in others and explore our differences with respect. We must draw a clear distinction between those who perpetrate atrocities and those who share their ethnicity, religion, or culture. And we must affirm the commonalities that bind the human family together. Colleges and universities are uniquely equipped to promote cultural understanding. At Princeton and campuses like our own, students encounter others whose language, religion, culture, and worldview may be fundamentally different from their own. Those encounters are the beginning of a journey to become a cosmopolitan, a term of Professor Appio's that captures for me the spirit of our shared humanity. This spirit was manifest in the wake of 9-11, when more than 1,000 members of our university and local communities assembled on Cannon Green to affirm that love is stronger than hate. In the weeks and months that followed, our students and faculty reached out to victims of the terrorist attacks in countless ways. Among the programs that we sponsored as a university was Arts Alive, in which our students escorted more than 10,000 school children from affected communities to artistic and cultural events in New York City. Another initiative created a scholarship and mentoring program for students at the John Jay College for Criminal Justice in Manhattan, which lost 68 current and former students, mostly firefighters, at Ground Zero. And on September the 13th, 2003, we dedicated a memorial garden that I encourage all of you to visit close to where we stand between East Pine and Chancellor Green. In this serene yet central spot, the names of the Princetonians who died on 9-11 are inscribed in a circle of 13 stars, much as we mark the dormitory rooms of those alumni who laid down their lives for their country. And so, as we welcome the class of 2015 and embark on a new academic year, let us dedicate ourselves to building the strongest possible bridges between us and others, regardless of race, creed, and culture, and to rekindle the flame of personal and collective engagement that burned so brightly in the aftermath of the terrorist attacks. It is now my privilege to invite Professor of Philosophy Kwame Anthony Appiah to speak to us. He will be followed by Princeton alumna Chloe Wolfert, class of 2007, who lost her father, Martin Wolford, class of 1976, in the attack on the World Trade Center. Charlie Metzger, class of 2012, representing our current students, and Senator Bradley, who as a public servant and private citizen, has called on Americans to build a more compassionate and tolerant society. There, there is a rhythm to remembrance. Exactly 10 years ago, the towers fell, the Pentagon shook, and a field outside Shanksville was scorched with the wreckage of metal and human lives. 
Most of the 3,000 people who died in those places were Americans. Others were from China, India, Malaysia, Jordan, Ghana, Peru, Moldova, more than 80 countries in all. An assault on two of our global cities was bound to imperil the lives of people from around the world because, as the novelist Ishmael Reed once said about our country, the world is here. And so this attack on the United States wasn't just an attack on us. It threatened values held dear by people of every nation, people of every faith, and none. Two days after the attack, you could read these words in the French newspaper, Le Monde. La folie, même au prétexte du désespoir, n'est jamais une force qui peut régénérer le monde. Voilà pourquoi, aujourd'hui, nous sommes Américains. Madness, even on the pretext of despair, is never going to be a force for regenerating the world. That is why today we, the French, are Americans. For a long moment, those were sentiments heard around the world as the vast majority of humankind, united by shock, stood with us in our sense of grief and loss. And we have other things to remember with gratitude and with pride. Our political leaders, from the president down, forcefully insisted that despite the attackers' claims, we were at war with no religion and certainly with no race or ethnicity. The American creed that this was a country of foreigners where no one was truly foreign, that creed was upheld, at least as ideal and aspiration. Of course, here in the university, the task of commemoration is inseparable from the work of comprehension. The tragedy and the crime of 9-11 summoned the attention of all of our disciplines. Architects and mechanical engineers analyzed the collapse of the towers. Biologists used DNA to identify the dead. Scholars of religion untangled the many meanings of jihad. Historians and political scientists explained the roots of Al-Qaeda. And social scientists drew on a rich body of research to explore the processes that sunder us from one another. Several decades ago, the American social psychologist Muzaffar Sharif, in a famous experiment, took two groups of ordinary middle-class boys to a vast wilderness preserve in Oklahoma and watched as conflict and competition between them shaped their identities. What had started as two sports teams turned into two warring tribes. Healthy competition descended into bloody opposition. One day, the kids were merely clashing on the playing field. A few days later, after an escalating scale of incidents, kids from one group were mounting a midnight raid on the other group, armed with rocks and hoping, apparently, for blood. Sharif, like his colleagues, was aghast as he watched. But he wasn't astonished. You see, he was a teenager in southeastern Turkey in 1919 when Greek soldiers seized control and set about slaughtering the town's Turkish inhabitants. During one attack, he saw the man next to him bayoneted, and he barely escaped himself. Two years later, Turkish forces retaliated, burning much of the Greek-occupied town. So Sharif knew from first-hand experience that identities with sharp edges are bound to draw blood. Witness Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri, the man who was widely considered the architect of 9-11, Osama bin Laden's longtime deputy, and now apparently his successor as Amir of Al-Qaeda. He's devoted himself to crafting a creed that would be diamond hard and an identity that is razor sharp. Hence, a denunciation he issued a few years ago 
of a phenomenon he calls waviness. When it came to the rich and complex code of conduct known as Sharia, he declared, and I'm quoting, no person is able to stand in the position of waviness or oscillation. It doesn't accept jokes. Either you are a believer in Allah, and then you have to abide by his laws, or you are a disbeliever in him, and then there is no use in discussing with you the details of his law. The waviness which Western secularism desires to spread, no proper mind which, res which respects itself can accept. Well, waviness, which is to say irony and the possibility of self-scrutiny, was, he rightly feared, destructive to his mission of fanaticism. And I believe, on the contrary, that what he calls waviness must be central to a liberal education. We philosophers sometimes use the word fallibilism to name the recognition that any of our beliefs could be an error. But don't confuse this disengagement, this, this with disengagement or indifference. We believe what we believe, but we're not afraid to test our beliefs against reality because we can entertain the possibility, unlike Dr. Zawahiri, that we are wrong. John Maynard Keynes, the economist, when tweaked for changing his views on some matter, is said to have replied, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? <laughs> All this, of course, is anathema to the violent extremist and to those who, opposing violent extremism, have become a mirror image of what they detest. You may have noticed that people who abhor waviness in the realm of ideas denying the possibility that they could be in error, tend also to abhor waviness in the realm of identity, denying the mutable, multiple nature of the answers to the question who we are. Yet that mutability and multiplicity are identity's saving grace. Muzaffar Sharif, studied in the Oklahoma Witness, showed how easily murderous enemies were, uh, enmities were conjured into being. But he also showed how, as a social force, fusion can outpower fission. It happened when the feuding parties faced challenges that required them to work together. One day during his experiment, Sharif staged a breakdown of a heavy bus. All the kids from the two groups had to band together in order to push it uphill. And now he watched as mortal enemies became blood brothers. Sharif called these unifying challenges superordinate goals. There are seven billion human beings now on a small rock hurtling through space, sharing a fragile ecosystem with an uncounted yet dwindling number of trees, thousands upon thousands of coal-burning power plants, and something like 600 million gasoline-powered cars. Each year now, upwards of 20,000 species go extinct. Each year, the polar caps melt and the seas encroach further upon the land. Would you say there's any shortage of superordinate goals? for our own species. When the global economy functions well, it can lift thousands, hundreds of millions out of extreme poverty. When it falters, it can plunge hundreds of millions into extreme poverty. The 1918 flu epidemic infected more than a quarter of the Earth's population. What will the next pandemic do? There's a rhythm of remembrance, but there's a rhythm of forgetfulness too. Plagues, depressions, the mass carnage of industrialized warfare, these experiences too easily fade from our consciousness. So we need our humanists as well as our scientists and engineers. 
Someone told me this story. A colleague once made the commonplace observation in conversation with Albert Einstein that from the perspective of an astronomer, we human beings are nothing but the tiniest of dots. Why, yes, Einstein replied, and some of those dots are astronomers. <laughs> Einstein's response, as so often, was the humanist response. Particular lives, compounded of particular experiences, perspectives, values, and strivings, each one of them matters. On the 10th anniversary of September the 11th, we rightly think back on the toll extracted by the forces of fanaticism and division. But we must also think ahead to how we might conjure the forces of amity and of union, how we might meet shared perils with shared struggle. As the planet grows smaller, the human spirit must grow larger. To rescue this fragile world of ours, it's not enough to remember who we have been. We must also decide who we want to be. We can't simply retreat into the fortress of the familiar. Instead, let us keep our ears open for the rhythms of new identities and new ideas. Nineteen fifty three, Martin Phillips Walforth, better known as Buff, was born on october twenty second into a wonderful family consisting of his parents and two older sisters. Nineteen sixty eight, he graduated from Bergen Catholic in Demrest, New Jersey. Nineteen seventy six, he graduated from Princeton University, political science major, impressive member of the golf team, and loyal member of Cottage Club. 1980, married to the love of his life and best friend, Susan. 1985, his first and only child was born, the apple of his eye, named Chloe. That's me. 2001, dedicated employee of Sandler O'Neill, he died in the World Trade Center, second tower, 104th floor. While those are the facts, I am here to tell you the story. I grew up loving Princeton because my dad loved Princeton, and that's just what little girls do. Always a proud Princetonian, my dad attributed a lot of his success at work and in life to the values instilled in him here. The people he was exposed to and friends that surrounded him all challenged him to be his best self. He always hoped Princeton for me so that I too could experience what he did. Princeton is not just a four-star education or a lead to a good job, but rather a home you can always come back to, a family you can call on at any time. Picture a daughter whose immense adoration of her father was blinding and whose mimicking reverence of this place called Princeton almost seemed cliche. Fast forward to November 2001 as a junior in high school when my awe of Princeton was solidified as I had the privilege of listening to President Shirley Tillman read sentiments written by family members, classmates, advisors, and roommates, which reflected on the lives of each and every one of the thir 13 Princeton alumni lost during the attacks on the 11th. Athletes, analysts, writers, producers, financial gurus, a physicist, whether it be their dazzling charisma, astonishing intuitiveness, indispensable loyalty, charming diplomacy, 
unparalleled selflessness, or keen sensitivity, whatever the case may be. While these 13 varied in age and industry, they all had three things in common. While Princeton doesn't offer an undergraduate course in the art of giving back, it seemed as if each had an inherent ability to do just that. Each had an outstanding and critical impact on all those lucky enough to cross their path. The third commonality, all 13 of them tragically perished on September 11th, 2001. Princeton outshone everyone once again with the remembrance of their beloved 13. I had been to countless memorials those few short months following the 11th. And while all well-meaning, many of them seemed impersonal, forced, and somehow I always left feeling a little bit more lost. It was different being here at Princeton, memorializing those thousands of innocent lives. I'll never forget how beautiful the interior of the chapel looked and how soothing the choir's voices were to our aching minds and empty hearts. While a powerful reflection of each alumni's contribution to life was shared, the overall message conveyed, no one will ever forget. Just two years later, September 11th, 2003, I had arrived on campus as a freshman for my first day of class. Just two days later, many of us here today stood in this exact same area for the unveiling of the 9-11 Memorial Garden. A serene space with a powerful message, President Tillman referred to the sentiment behind the 13 stars, just as she did today. The first American flag had 13 stars. Each star at the dormitories on campus marked the rooms of alumni who were soldiers fallen in the line of duty. The parallels are uncanny. Our 13 alumni are Americans. Our 13 alumni are heroes. To put it simply, they are our very own stars. Although my dad and I spoke about it, he never knew I applied to his alma mater. While he never put the pressure on to apply, I know this is what he wanted, and hopefully Princeton would agree it was a good fit. To say I thoroughly enjoyed my four years here is a big understatement. Having lived and lost, I can confidently say I didn't take any of it for granted. I found a family in the class of 1976. I found a family in the class of 2007. In fact, many of my college friends are here in the audience today. My, my dad would be so proud that I share Princeton with all of you, and I know he would remind me of how lucky I am to have had this privilege. Now here we are 10 years later. How do we feel? How should we feel? Anna Quinlan got to the root of it in her book, Loud and Clear, when she says, grief remains one of the things that has the power to silence us. She continues, maybe we do not speak of it because death will mark all of us sooner or later. Or maybe it is unspoken because grief is only the first part of it. After a time, it becomes something less sharp but larger too, a more enduring thing called loss. She ends by saying, loss is forever. I wish the terrorists would read Anna Quinlan's book so they understand that grief will not silence us, so they understand that although the sharp feeling of loss will never go away, it will not debilitate us, but rather prompt us to find light in all the darkness, to find beauty in all the dismay, and to live every day for our lost ones as if they are still here. Even though their lives were so brutally taken, I try to think that they're in a better place and doing greater things. I would like to thank the university for so graciously inviting me to share my thoughts today. 
It is an honor and great privilege to be with all of you and to speak alongside President Tillman, Professor Appiah, Charles, and former Senator Bradley. On behalf of all the families, I would also like to thank the university for acknowledging their fallen alumni with such grace and reverence over the past 10 years. If there is one thing I know for certain and one thing I am most grateful for, it is that Princeton will never forget.
Good afternoon, and thank you very much for the opportunity to be here today. There's a concept in psychology that's called flashbulb memory, which refers to the tendency of the brain to preserve with vivid accuracy moments in time that are especially emotional, traumatic, or otherwise significant. So while I remember very little else from September of 2001, I, like millions of other Americans, can tell you exactly where I was on September 11th when I first heard the news that Washington and New York had been attacked. To be entirely truthful, I'm not from New York City or Philadelphia or the tri-state area at large. I'm from Palm Beach, Florida, which is approximately 1,200 miles away from Manhattan. I didn't lose family members or close friends on September 11th, and the closest relative I have in the armed forces is a cousin in the Air Force who's stationed in Alaska, not in Afghanistan. And so I think it would be in some ways inappropriate for me to discuss with certainty the academic, epistemological, personal, or political consequences of what happened a decade ago today. President Tillman, Professor Appiah, Chloe, and Senator Bradley can all do that far better than I can. But perhaps one resource that I have that they don't, one mode of remembrance, and I say this without trying to accuse any of them of being Luddites, is technology. Our generation spends a tremendous amount of time on Facebook, Twitter, and sites like it, and so instead of offering general observations about the way that 9-11 has impacted the millennials, I thought I'd take a few minutes and offer a few slices of life. Tweets and Facebook posts by ordinary people over the last 48 hours, which I think provide an important insight into the American character a decade after September 11th. Late last night on Twitter, a 21-year-old named Salvatore La Rosa wrote, 10 years ago, I was watching SpongeBob before going to school. Sixth grade seems forever ago, but 9-11 seems like yesterday. A girl with the Twitter handle Alexa915 wrote, I was turning 13 on 9-11. It wasn't a good birthday. I hadn't even heard the word terrorist until that day. A girl who calls herself just Catherine X tweeted, 9-11 changed my view of the world. It forced me to grow up. I hope it helped others too, and that it gave the United States more humanity. A 16-year-old student from London named Alexis Nicole wrote on Facebook that a decade ago she was sitting in class, quote, watching my first grader cry uncontrollably as she listened to the announcement. A teacher from Washington, D.C. named Kelly Herdrich posted on Facebook that she was at the time a first-year teacher teaching at a class full of innocent children less than a mile away from the Pentagon. Rachel DePampa, a local newscaster in Richmond, Virginia, tweeted, To Romeo, my friend who died at the Pentagon, you were a light that warmed every room. You were missed. An 18-year-old named Brianna Simon remembered that when she first saw the events unfolding in New York, she was, quote, in third grade in the classroom, and the teacher turned on the TV, and afterward, our entire class got up in unison and said the Pledge of Allegiance. An audio engineer named Kashim Daniels posted, Again, I thank the Most High God for bringing my mom safely out of the towers and home. A girl named Ashlyn Troutman observed on Twitter that, quote, Today we are thankful to have the privilege to breathe freedom. A public relations specialist named Jennifer Jentz, who lives in Iowa, observed, The courage of the men and women who walked into burning buildings as everyone else was trying to get out, still amazes me. And a woman who just calls herself Claire posted, Tom and Ray, we miss you more every day. 
Thousands of Twitter users retweeted what Amy Lee, the lead singer of Evanescence, had to say this morning. Quote, remembering the things that really matter today, love, family, compassion, humanity. And finally, Good Morning America's Twitter account this morning recalled what Diane Sawyer said a decade ago on live TV moments after the second plane crashed into the World Trade Center. Quote, to watch powerless is a horror. And I know I said I wouldn't talk about general consequences, but that particular quote struck a chord with me. So if you'll indulge me for just a moment. Our generation, the generation of current undergraduates at Princeton, and all of us are not, in fact, powerless. None of us are. When an event as tragic as September 11th occurs, it's hard to imagine how anything positive can come of it. But all clouds have silver linings, no matter how thin and no matter how barely visible. And so I continue to hope that the events of September 11th have changed all of us. To the class of 2015, it was almost exactly a decade ago that columnist David Brooks, now of the New York Times, visited Princeton and conducted a series of interviews that became the landmark article, The Organization Kid. Brooks marveled at the time at what he described as the political apathy of our generation. He said that it astounded him that while our fathers and mothers' generation had picketed and protested, our generation seemed more interested in social networking and the sites that we become, MySpace and Facebook. I think Brooks was wrong, but I think his article issued a challenge to all of us. I continue to hope that September 11th has changed all of us. And I hope that September 11th may have brought terrorism and intolerance close enough to our generation and close enough to home to have created in us a new sense of civic engagement and a commitment to tolerance, to education, and to pluralism, which will one day ensure that the events of a decade ago are never repeated. Thank you. A few days after the World Trade Towers fell, I made my way down to the site through streets crowded with the curious, the caring, and the brave. I remember the stillness south of 14th Street. I remember the pungent odor of smoldering buildings. I remember the faces of firemen covered by gray dust as they emerged exhausted from looking for survivors in the rubble. I remember citizens applauding as a fire truck slowly passed down the street. I remember a large tent set up for pets with lines of people outside, hoping that inside they would find their lost dog or cat. I remember a man who walked around dazed asking if anyone knew where there was an open pharmacy so he could get his prescription filled. I remember the messages and photos which had been posted on makeshift bulletin boards around New York by family members in hopes that their loved ones in the towers were not dead, but just missing. I remember the flowers, the thousands of bouquets left in appreciation at fire stations across Manhattan. I remember people sincerely thanking policemen as if to realize for the first time that they're there to protect us every day.
In the weeks after 9-11, New York was a different place. People seemed more open, more vulnerable, more in need of human connection. People prayed together, stood on street corners holding each other and crying, and looked to each other to make sense out of what just happened. And it wasn't only New Yorkers or New Jerseyans, the state where more people died on 9-11 than in the Vietnam War. Oklahoma City EMT workers who remembered the job of digging out from the rubble of their own terrorist event in 1995 headed to New York as soon as they heard about the towers falling. Firefighters and EMT teams drove all the way from Omaha, Bridgeport, Connecticut, Eureka, Pennsylvania, Brockton, Massachusetts, Long Island, Westchester, New Jersey, and many more places. The tragedy called forth the goodness in people in a very special way. The target of our anger was clear, Al-Qaeda. The source of our love for each other was more elusive. At collective moments filled with emotion, hierarchies disappear, ethnic stereotypes vaporize, Walls of fear and suspicion crumble. What is left is our humanity, which we all share in common. Too often that humanity is covered up by the pursuit of material things, the worry about what other people think, the anxieties of personal relationships, the grind of every day to make an A, to make a living, to move up the ladder. In such moments, we lose sight of our human connection. I have a radio show called American Voices. Each week, I talk to someone who's been doing something selfless in their community. One day, I interviewed a man who'd shined shoes at the Pittsburgh Children's Hospital for 46 years. And out of every tip that he got, he put a portion of that tip into a fund to pay for poor kids' health care. And the day I interviewed him, he told me that he'd put over $100,000 into that fund. In another show, I talked with a man in San Diego who drives the freeways around the city in a souped-up car full of engine repair equipment and tires. When he sees people stranded alongside the freeway, he pulls up with cars whizzing by at 70 miles an hour and helps them fix their car at no charge. I wondered how he got started driving the roads and helping people. He said that when he was 16, living in Illinois, one snowy winter night, he was driving alone on a rural road and his car slid off into a snowbank. His motor died, the car was stuck, it got colder and colder, he began to worry. At that moment, a middle-aged man pulled up, said, get in, I'll take you to town. When the stranger dropped him off, the boy gratefully said he'd like to do something for him. The stranger wouldn't hear of it. When the boy persisted, the man said, well, there is one thing you could do for me pass on the favor. So the roadman told me, that's what I've been trying to do 
for 22 years. I see a relationship between the goodness in millions of Americans and the behavior that emerges in times of national crisis. The challenge is for us to access the energy that gives us our capacity in crisis and hold it with us every day. The result would be a different society. My interview guests, the shoeshine man in Pittsburgh or the road man in San Diego, are not unique individuals. They're just in touch with their deeper servant selves, which lie in each of us. I hope all of you will see that whatever our problems, personal or national, will solve them together more easily if we stay in touch with the goodness in each of us. Occasionally that goodness can be called forth by a leader or by a tragedy. But we will have truly changed our world when we can call it forth ourselves every day in our work and in our lives. And that's the best way to honor the memory of 9-11. So today, let us commemorate not the tragedy, but the goodness that the tragedy called forth.
Receive now this benediction. May God bless us and keep us and make us indeed one indivisible nation sustained by an enduring hope and a freedom that flourishes. May God's face shine upon us and be gracious to us and make us indeed one indivisible nation undergirded by an indomitable spirit of compassion and immeasurable mercy. May God lift up God's countenance upon us and give us peace, a peace that pervades every corner of the earth and make us indeed one indivisible nation with liberty and justice for all. Grant us, O God, the courage of heart and the strength of mind to be ambassadors and the embodiment of peace in our world the world that you love unconditionally. Amen. Great.